Welcome to the podcast of St. Basil the Great Catholic Church in Brecksville, Ohio, with homilies, talks, and interviews relevant to your Catholic faith. God bless you, and enjoy. Hey friends, it's Tommy from the parish staff here at St. Basil, and we have something living in our basement, lurking in our basement, (laughs) crawling around, sleeping there. What else do you do there? Eating. Eating, eating stuff in our basement, the basement of the rectory, basement of the parish office. Now, we have a seminarian living with us this summer. You are Chris Catone. Hello, everybody. Hello, podcast world. Yes. Have you been on a podcast before? This is my first time on a podcast. No way. Yes. And I introduced you like you're a cockroach. Yeah. <laughs> no, so Chris is living here this summer in between school years mm-hmm. at the seminary. Yeah. And doing some things for us, right? Yeah. Helping out with the maintenance. You're wiping all the grubby fingerprint yeah. <laughs> stains off of the doors of the church, right? Yeah. Some of those are permanent. It's really, <laughs> it's, oh it's frustrating. Can you it's really frustrating. The fingerprints, and we can find out who these parishioners are. If we want to go through, if we want to go to those mm-hmm. lengths, I guess we could do We've that. Got but all <laughs> the information on you. No, I'm <laughs> yeah. So tell us about that. You're working here. Yeah, working here, just getting to know, uh, getting to know, obviously the uh, the whole staff, um, particularly the the uh, the two maintenance guys I work with, Brian and Chuck, and uh, just getting a sense of of uh, what parish life is like here at St. Basil's. Also, being able to live at a larger parish, I grew up at kind of a smaller to medium sized parish at St. John Bosco in Parma Heights. Uh, so where Father Dave was, where Father Dave Libertor yeah. was, yes, twenty nine years, right? twenty five, ne- yeah, twenty nine years, yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of a different dynamic, and uh, just excited to excited to be here, excited to experience the community, just soak in all those all those graces that the Lord wants to provide this summer. So so. Is this like an assignment for you? Do you need to live at a parish? What? No, this is actually an option. So unlike a lot of other seminaries, we uh, Cleveland gives you, uh, our Cleveland Seminary gives us the option to uh, basically do what we want with our summers. Um, so some guys choose to kind of have more of a secular job maybe working at like some fast food joint or one of the guys actually was working at Cedar Point this summer. Hmm. Or, you know, we can live at a parish, live and work at a parish. So this is the third parish that I've I've lived at so far uh, throughout my seminary journey. I've lived at my home parish at St. John Bosco, and then I lived last summer at St. Mary of the Falls and Olmstead Falls. But this happened, St. Basil's is the first parish that I've actually lived and worked at. So, mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of unique in that in that way. Cool. Why yeah. are you, why are you in the seminary in the first place? Yeah. So <laughs> it's it's really a, it's a great question, you know, um, and it's something that I can't kind of need to uh, need to continue to kind of ask myself. Yeah, you better know. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how long you been there? But yeah, I've been there now. I'm going into my sixth year now in okay, seminary. Yeah. yeah you so get an idea. Yeah. <laughs> well. I don't really have one profound moment in prayer where I just knew that God was calling me into into seminary and to kind of explore whether or not I was called to priesthood. 
But I can tell you that my upbringing, and I really don't give a whole lot of kudos to to my parents and all that they've they've done for me. And I think in particular, how they've the love that they've received through our Lord and just through their involvement in church uh, church community, church life at St. John Bosco, how they've given given me a lot of that, a taste of that, and. Yeah, it's it's love that's faith inspired, you know, and I think them knowing Jesus, encouraging me to know Jesus obviously had a lot to do with it. Praying with me um, before going off to school, praying at night with me and, uh, you know, just continuing to kind of raise us and raise me and my sisters in the faith, you know, understand that church is, is something that's very important. And obviously my, my dad, my dad as well has, um, has a lot to do with just our involvement at St. John Bosco's. He's the, uh, the music director there and has been for the last 25 years. So, which is, which is quite a feat. So shout out to, shout out to my dad, Norm. And obviously my mom too, you know, my mom has a, has a really strong devotion to the Eucharist and we have an ad- a perpetual adoration chapel at St. John Bosco. Mm-hmm. And, um, she was really the one that kind of introduced me to, uh, to Eucharistic adoration. You know, she, she would have me kind of tag along on her Sunday night, holy hours, you know, when I was a, a wee little boy mm-hmm. and, uh, and just, just kind of got, got to know, really got to know Jesus through, um, through Eucharist and also through, through church, church community. Obviously our, our parish is small, but it's a vibrant parish and a parish that is centered, obviously centered around the Eucharist since we have that, uh, perpetual adoration chapel. You know, that was all really kind of big in my discernment. But I, I would th- say even, um, along with my parish and my parents, my high school, Holy Name High School, where I went um, from 2012 to 2016, I was really involved in campus ministry there. Our campus ministry, it's I would say it's one of the best campus ministry programs, and I'm a little bit biased, but one of the best campus ministry programs in the diocese. So that's, and I think one particular aspect of it was uh, on Thursday nights, we would gather together as a high school, well, some high school high school members would would come, and uh, in our chapel we would pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and uh, we would also have some spontaneous prayer, um, an intercessory prayer. It was it was incredible. I mean, probably forty five to fifty kids would show up on Thursday oh, nights. Yeah, awesome. so at the school at the school at Holy yeah. Name. Yeah, in so our chapel. You're done with school, and then you come back to school. Come willingly. back to school on Thursday nights. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was it was the cool thing to do, honestly. It was the cool thing to do on Thursday nights. And uh just um I mean just a wonderful wonderful time for for uh for community and community that's centered around around Jesus. And Do you wear uniforms at Holy Name? We did wear uniforms at Holy did Name. Did you have to wear uniforms no, on Thursday no. nights? So you could see all your classmates. Yeah. And what they regularly yeah. dress like. <laughs> right. Interesting. That's Yes. Well, I mean, regularly, I, I mean, a lot of kids would come in like sweatpants or like pajama pants. And I mean, you know, just be comfortable. Yeah. You know, that's that was kind of the encouragement. So I would say kind of the mix of, you know, obviously my family and then um, high school campus ministry and my peers, my peers really encouraging me to, uh, to seek out, you know, seminary, especially my closest friends, like saying, like, I think we could really see you as a priest. You know, I think you have, you have the characteristics that would really make a good priest. And so let's forget that you just mentioned that some of your friends said you had good characteristics that would make a good priest. Let's put that aside. Yeah. And I'll just ask you, what are some characteristics that do make a good priest so that our folks listening can say, well, I know some people with those traits, you know, a young man who might 
uh, make a good priest one day. So I yeah. should maybe pray for him or mention it in passing, encourage him. Yeah, yeah. What makes a good priest? Yeah. Or what kind of priest do you want to be? I yeah. imagine you want to be a good priest. Right? Yeah. What makes a good priest? I was talking to one of our formators at the seminary, Father Joe Koopman, about this. When he was at his first assignment, St. Charles Parish in Bor- uh, St. Charles Parish in Parma, one of the things they have they've had many vocations from that from that parish. And one of the things that he kind of got a sense of, especially for kids that were in like his youth group that he was running, he could tell a guy was, you know, maybe had what it takes to be a priest just based on the young man's ability to go out and seek out the person that maybe is the poorest in the room, the person that maybe just needs to needs to know that Jesus loves them the most. Not necessarily going up to up to them and saying verbatim, "Hey, Jesus loves you," but just just being a compassionate um, and attentive, you know, presence to them, um, and just knowing that that you're there and that you're pre- that that you're present to them. You know, I, I think I think that's one of the things um, that really makes a good priest is is how willing are you to go after after the lost? You know, like like Jesus says, you know, I'd leave the ninety nine to to search after the one. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of a good image for a good candidate for, for priesthood. Is it hard for you to sometimes see yourself as a person on the fringes who still needs to be reached out to, who still, who Jesus still does need to come out and save? I mean, you're an involved yeah. Catholic, you're in the seminary six yeah. years. I just, I'm thinking of that myself. Like I work at a church I have for so long. Yeah. Sometimes it's easy to just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm in the 99. Yeah. No, I mean, we're, I, we're all the one, right? right? Right. And I think it starts with, it starts with the fact that like, we, we are all poor. We are all poor. We are all in need of, of God's grace. We're all in need of the friendship that, that he extends to us. And the fact that we have, we literally have nothing to offer in and of ourselves. We can only offer Christ and we have to know that we need Christ in order to be able to offer him. I think it just begins with that is like, yeah, I'm, I'm poor. I am very poor. I'm as poor as the poorest person in that room. But with Christ, I am, I'm rich. We have to know our poverty in order to know um, the richness of his grace and how he wants to move and act within our own lives. I was praying this morning with Matthew, I think it's chapter 8, and Jesus gets out of a boat, and then some people are carrying a paralyzed man on a bed to Jesus. And Jesus says, take courage, my child, your sins are forgiven. And so I was in prayer thinking, how am I paralyzed? And who are my friends who are carrying me? So then I thought all my saint friends, and I just yeah. prayed to them, and I said, can you guys carry me to Jesus? Because I'm paralyzed. How am I paralyzed? I mean, thanks be to God. There are a lot of things in my life that uh, have gone well and are going well. But at the same time, like the inner tragedy is I still commit sins. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> I mean, right. I work at yeah. a church. A priest signs my paycheck. So how am I still paralyzed and sometimes in that complacency think that I don't need a savior? And Jesus says, right, he just comes right out and says it. The healthy have no need of a physician. It's the sick, sick. that do, right? Yeah. So right. how am I still paralyzed? How am I still powerless? Because in that humility to be able to say to Jesus, and I'm trying to work on this now, I've got no power. So yeah. you 
now have an opportunity to be powerful. Yeah. Because I'm telling you, I don't have the power. Yeah. So come in in, yeah. the, in those those three words: powerless, paralysis, poverty. Yeah. Yeah, and that's essentially that should be the priest. That should be the priest. You know, um, mm -hmm. because the priest, uh, the priesthood, it doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to to us as priests. It's Christ's priesthood preeminently. And as long as we remember that, then we're going to be offering Christ to, to people that need it most. But I think the priest needs to know that more than any other person, that he is poor, that he's in need of a physician. At that point, then, then God can really, can really work, work miracles through that priest, you know? Yeah. So you have been doing, I bet, a lot of thinking about the whole celibacy question. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know priests are celibate? Yeah. So news oh. to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all your girlfriends are going to be upset, <laughs> more upset than they are now, just being jealous of one another. But yeah, how do you sort of wrap your mind around that? Is celibacy one big no? Is it uh, suppression? Is it rechanneling? Yeah. How do you, how does a, a young I think about yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting because it depends on it depends on our perspective. I think if you look at celibacy primarily as a discipline, it's not going to look attractive. You know, it's not something that's um that you're going to want to commit to. But the reality is that celibacy we're not being robbed of love as celibates, but it's an invitation to love deeper. It's an invitation to love deeper that's modeled by Christ who was celibate himself. And it's also celibacy at the heart of it is this self-renunciation, this self-forgetfulness, which really mirrors that of what marital love is all about. Um, so it's really- Self-forgetfulness in order to remember the other. Right, exactly, and exactly. Available for the other. Available for the other, right, yeah. I think when you when you separate celibacy from love, then who would want to do it? You know, I mean, who would who would want to make that commitment? But it's really it's really an invitation to to a radical love, a radical gift of self that was embraced by our Lord, um, and that He allows His priests to participate in uh, through His grace, through the grace that He um, that He offers at ordination. And the small grace opportunities that he gives us, you know, throughout throughout priesthood. So, men that have been in priesthood for sixty or seventy years could probably tell you much more than more than me. But I, I'm sharing some of the wisdom from other priests that have have talked a little bit about celibacy, you know, and it's it's deeper than just a discipline, you know. It's more than that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we've talked about priesthood. And being a seminarian, and we have a couple of seminarians, well, about to be seminarians. We have a couple of young men from our parish, thanks be to God. Yes. Good job, families. Good job, parish. Yes. Good job, youth group. Yeah. Good job, young men. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who are going to be entering the seminary this coming fall. So it's still happening, people. Young men are still opening their hearts mm -hmm. and saying, God, what do you want to do with me? I'm here to serve. Yeah. And willing to ask that question. And yeah. seminary is really the place to ask that question. Because it's uh, not a question that can be answered just on your own as an 18-year-old guy. No. Without the wisdom of... Formators, formators right. Yeah. Spiritual directors. And the prayer and yeah. the study and, and learning from the wise people who've gone before us. Yeah. 
and you can't, you cannot underestimate the prayers um, that you as a parish offer. I am just always constantly um, just getting showered with prayers from people that I don't even know, you know, <laughs> and, and who, who um, approach me and say, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. And I couldn't even, I mean, some of them, shame on me, I couldn't even tell them, I couldn't even tell you their first name. And maybe I've only ran into them one or two times, but I think it's just, it's just incredible. So know of the power of your prayers as a parish community. Um, and know how much that helps for for men that are discerning a religious vocation. And it's a great act of love and humility yeah. to encourage your son to even think about it. Absolutely. Or your grandson to think about yeah. it. Or your nephew. I don't know the parents of any priest who aren't just so happy their son's a priest. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But you always yeah. hear, too, about some guys who are like, yeah, my parents, they want grandkids. Or, yeah. But man, the blessings come just in different in different manifestations. But when I asked you, I said, hey, you want to record a podcast because you're here washing windows and being a <laughs> seminarian, and we can get to know you because yeah. you're not from our parish here, but people will see you around, see you at daily mass maybe. And you said, you know, maybe we could talk about Eucharistic spirituality a little bit. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Still something I'm trying to figure out, right? <laughs> Eucharistic spirituality, and I don't think this is over, hopefully it's not oversimplifying it, but it's recognizing the presence of our Lord in the, in the most holy Eucharist, in, in his precious body and blood. Um, and it's having a profound reverence, a profound joy upon approaching the altar to receive Eucharist, upon worshiping our Lord through some type of Eucharistic devotion, uh, like adoration. A lot of those things, you know, a reference a reverence for what's happening at the mass, also a reverence for for what's happening when we when we put ourselves, when we place ourselves before our Eucharistic Lord and just allow him to look at us. And that's where I think Eucharistic spirituality comes in for me is as I've just really profited off of just being with our Lord and allowing him to just gaze at me. Um when the Eucharist is exposed in the monstrance, just allowing, allowing, allowing the Father to look at me through Jesus, through His Son. So that's not where we're all at. Did you find Mass boring <laughs> as a kid? Yes, absolutely. So I didn't. When does the switch yeah. come for you? You know, I think I think the switch comes for me when I begin to see Jesus as a person, as someone who, who wants to encounter me. And the instrument that he uses to encounter me is through the Liturgy of the Word and Liturgy of the Eucharist. I've come to recognize that if we get obsessed with just the visible parts of Mass, I think we really lose what's actually happening. And for me, the, flip, the, the switch flipped when I recognize that Mass is an opportunity for, for the Lord to just love on me. I mean, in the, in the Liturgy of the Word, we hear obviously about a lot about the, the story of the people of Israel and how they're journeying with, with God and how they're stubborn, they're selfish, but God continues to love on them. And then obviously His love culminating in the person of, of Jesus. And at that point in the Liturgy of the Eucharist, when His body and blood, um, His body's broken, His blood is shed for us. 
it's the visible that's leading us to the invisible. And I think that's where everything kind of, kind of flipped for me, recognizing what's the sign that's behind, you know, the Eucharist and, and behind the word and that kind of thing. So I think that's kind of when, when things kind of took a turn for me. Mm -hmm. I think one of the devil's tactics is to convince us that the way things are is the way they'll always be. Especially when we're going through desolation or a hard time, the evil one wants us to think it's going to be like this forever. Yeah. And that discourages us and we lose hope. I think the same thing in our prayer lives and in our experience of the sacraments. If we think this is all there is and it's not that exciting, but what a great grace it is to just be honest with Jesus in prayer and say, can you take me deeper? Yeah. Please take me deeper. Yeah. And whatever the next step is, Jesus, I don't know where I am along the way, along the path. You know where I am. You can see the whole path at once. Can you just take me one more step? I don't know what that means. I don't know where it is. I don't know how to get there, but can you just move me along? One more step in prayer. Yeah. One more step in faith. One more step deeper into the mass. Because you you got to lead me. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll just stay where I am. Yeah. <laughs> and that requires that requires vulnerability on the part of the prayer, right? And the part of the prayer understanding like I'm not really getting much out of out of coming to mass, Lord. What's going on here? What's going on here? Yeah. Why am I feeling this way? But I think when you can when you can be honest with God like that, I think you're going to find that he is going to be honest with you and share his heart with you if he, if you share his heart with him. Uh, just a sense of peace that you experience once you once you share what is actually on your heart and what you actually feel, what you're experiencing. And I imagine you would agree that your experience of Mass would not be what it is if you weren't praying at other times outside of the Mass. Absolutely not. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So that enhances that enhances it. Yeah. Mass is basically it. Yeah. To be able to enter in and say, I don't, I don't even know how to pray. I'm sitting yeah. down here right now, Jesus. I've said I'm going to pray for five minutes. I don't know how to pray. I feel like I don't hear your voice. I kind of think this is going to be a waste of time. But in all that honesty, to be able to put that out and then let him return. Yeah. Some peace, some grace, maybe an insight or a word he'll share. Yeah. I even think just being able to sit when you're sitting down and saying, Lord, I'm not going to get anything out of this. That's a prayer. You know, I mean that's a prayer. But I think the key is once you once you name whatever is going on in your heart, then being able to sit back and listen. Listen for a few minutes. But by all means get get whatever is on your heart. Get that get that off your chest and share that with the Lord. Um because that's what he wants to hear that. He wants to hear that. Real us. Even if we think that he's not going to like who that is, yeah. the person who says, I think your mass yeah. is boring. Yeah. <laughs> the thing you told us to do in memory of you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Think about my children. They probably can look at my wife and I, and a lot of times they would look at it and, and say, that, that relationship seems boring. Yeah. <laughs> because a lot of it, we're not joking around and laughing and doing exciting things. Yeah. But they're, I mean, I love her. She loves me. There's like a deep love going on yeah. there. But from the outside, it could seem like not too exciting. Yeah. <laughs>
But that's just because they don't know. Right. And there's there's a maturing that has to happen, right? I mean, hindsight, I wouldn't have recognized that. And I think most kids don't. Well, I know you thought and prayed about this conversation. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you if there's anything else you want to add in. But one of the reasons we're talking about the Eucharist is we just embarked upon a three-year Eucharistic revival in the entire United States, centering ourselves back around the altar, seeing the gift that we have, not taking it for granted, diving deeper into Mm -hmm. devotion to it, Mm -hmm. diving deeper into knowledge about it. Mm -hmm. It's not just imparting information but it's forming a Eucharistic culture. And I think one of the reasons why they're starting this up, obviously the real presence is very important, but we've noticed a lot within our church over the last you know, few, few years. I mean, it can even go back to Vatican II, a lot of fragmentation. I think one of the aims of this Eucharistic revival is to try to bring people back into communion with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but that communion starts with, with Christ, right? He's the, he's the source of, of all communion. He's the reason that we have communion among each other. A reverence yeah, for a one another. Point. Yeah. And the yeah, the Eucharist is a symbol of unity. Yeah. That's that's how we how we know we're one people. Mm-hmm. And that's why we sing those songs like we are one body, the one body of Christ. Yeah. And we will try and go out on a, a Eucharistic prayer. This is a prayer I learned when I was much younger, and it still is the prayer I pray in the communion line, waiting to go up. Oh beautiful. Can and we hear it? <laughs> name of the Father, and Son, Son Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. So this is a prayer to Jesus' grandma. Oh, good Saint Anne, please obtain for me an increase of faith in the great mystery of the Holy Eucharist. Help me to see in this great sacrament Christ our High Priest, making real for me the saving grace of his death on the cross, feeding my soul with his flesh and blood, so that I may live in him and he in me producing the unity of the people of God and gathering his church together. By your powerful intercession, help me to center my life around the altar, that I may inherit the promise of the Lord. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life everlasting. Amen. 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 Well, thanks, Chris, so much. Thank you. Thanks, Tommy. God bless. You too. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this audio from our parish. You can find other homilies, talks, and interviews at our website, basilthegreat.org, or by subscribing to this podcast in your favorite app. Just search for St. Basil Catholic Church, Brexville. St. Basil the Great, pray for us.